0: Kia ora, and O'Brien tuku ingua. e kaorongi o Waituhi o tamaki, no mai hairumai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, Waituhi o tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Intergenerational play, supported by Deadly Ponies. Three generations of talented poets come together to share work from their new collections and to talk with each other about the literary influences, inheritances and preoccupations that have informed their practice. What connects them and what separates them. Kevin Island brings us Just Like That new poems. Anne Kennedy, the 2022 Ockham New Zealand Book Award shortlisted The Sea Walks Into a Wall. And Tei Tibble, the Ockham Award shortlisted Kura," A triumph of collections from three astonishing poetry masters.
1: Enga mana. E ngā reo, e ngā iwi, ko Anne Kennedy Aho, tēnā Akoto, ngā mihi nui ki a katoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kia ora. Um, a very warm welcome to this session of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Intergenerational Play, in which Kevin Ireland, Tei Tibble and myself get to talk poetry across the ages. Well, across 60 years, I think it is, between us. Um, so really looking for- forward to this. Um, Ko I'd like to acknowledge Ngāti Whātua, on whose land we are seated, and on whose land this event is taking place. My deepest respects to the guardians of this land, past, present and future. Couple of reminders before we start to uh, turn off your phone or put it on silent, don't want to be that person, Um, and to wear a mask if you possibly can, in the interests of your health and those around you. If you feel unwell um, at all during the session, um, please feel comfortable to leave. If you're sharing this event on social media which Auckland Writers' Festival uh, encourages greatly, um, please do so with regard to those around you. I'd like to acknowledge Deadly Ponies, makers of beautiful bags and other items for their generous support of this event. I also want to do a shout-out to Auckland Writers' Festival, all the staff, especially Anne O'Brien, for bringing us all together today, what a fantastic thing! So, in the in the next hour, we will corrido, generation, and poetry. Um, we'll do some readings, and at the uh, near the end of the session, there'll be the opportunity for you, the audience, to ask some questions. Um, I'm a participating chair, so that means I get to pose some questions and also um, have an opinion sometimes. <laughs> um, the other amazing thing is that this coincides with Poetry Day, so Happy Poetry Day, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the way we say that nowadays to each other, Happy Poetry Day, it's sort of like Happy Christmas, um, it's like that itty-bitty baby was, of poetry has been born. Um, so uh, so a lot going on today, a lot of events, uh, so thank you for all coming along to this one. Um, my next um, delightful task is to introduce our guests. Um, Kevin Ireland, OBE, much loved and admired author of poetry, novels, short stories, memoir. Kevin's many awards include an honorary doctorate from Massey University, Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement, and the AW Read uh, Award for Contribution to New Zealand Writing. Um, I have here Kevin's 27th, yeah, you didn't hear that, 27th book of poetry, um, which <laughs> Kevin... <laughs> <laughs> um, so Kevin is going to um, entertain us from that book um, in the session, which I'm greatly looking forward to because Kevin, is, as you know, is renowned as a great um, reader of his work. Um, te Tibble, Te Whanau uh, Apanui, Ngāti Parau, um, has recently stepped off the plane from somewhere over there. It's like, Paris. <laughs> yeah, it's, I was thinking, it's like, where the perfumes come from? York, Paris, pronto. Um, anyway... Um, where her first two collections of poetry have been published by Knopf um, to um, absolute acclaim, and also here um, in Aotearoa by Te Waka University Press. Um, So Tae won the Jessie Mackay Best First Book of Poetry, um, her first book. Her second book, Rangikura, we'll be hearing from later in the session. So Tay is also a book publicist and a columnist. <laughs> um, me, um, I'm a poet and an occasional novelist and a teacher of various things. Um, my most recent book is The Sea Walks Into a Wall. Um, and my proudest moment recently was to receive um, a Prime Minister's Award um, for a Literary Achievement from the Right Honourable Jacinda Ardern which was amazing. Thank you. Um, OK, we have a lot to get through, so let's get started. So the, the gist of this session is how the generation we were born into um, has affected our, um, our development as poets in all sorts of ways, across a range of ways. Um, maybe not everything we do is defined by that, um, but I think our times sheds um, much light on, on our, our writing and um, all sorts of things around our poetry. Um, there's a generation between Kevin and me. There's an eon between Kevin and me and Tay. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: so so we, span, we span 60 years, as I said before. That's a, that's a lot of time, and a lot has happened in that time. From you know the major political and social events of the 20th century, um, right up to the you know, the difficult, challenging and changing times that we find ourselves in in the current century, so I thought it would be good to start uh, sort of go back to the beginning and start with our origins, like where, where did we or start right doing this strange thing that we do writing poetry, um, like what inspired us or dro- drove us to get writing as poets, how the world around us affected us. And was it hard to put a stake in the ground as a poet? So Kevin, um, I'd like to start with you. Um, uh, I, you know, in the green room, we had a discussion about what well, I thought that you were born in the UK, but you were there for 25 years as a young adult and had, like, a career in the UK, and then, but you were born in Aotearoa and then came back to New Zealand in 1985. So, so your career has sort of spanned two places, but I wonder if you could talk a bit about, um, about your early years um, growing up in Aotearoa. So through the war um, and then becoming established as a poet, as a young, as a young person, um, I was particularly struck by, um, in your, I had this big stack of books m- at my feet. This is um, Kevin's Selected. This is not the Collected, it's just the Selected. <laughs> so several poems in here refer to to war years, and particularly, um, in particular Parade Liberation Day, which is so poignant. So Kevin, can you t- talk about your early years, be- growing up in Aotearoa and becoming a a poet as a young adult.
2: Yes. Uh, uh, poetry was something you didn't advertise. Uh, you kept quiet about it. It was a secret business. You trusted your friends with the information. You weren't at all out there to promote yourself or to do uh, anything that was unseemly because you'd get bashed for it. Um, and, uh, and I was against uh, suffering uh, for poetry uh, to that degree. Uh, so so that, that was something which now is accepted. We can have poets. But we used to uh, memorialize Thomas Bracken and, uh, and uh, very few others. Um, and uh, th- this was uh, because the, the only poet was a, s- a safely dead one. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it, it has happened uh, in my lifetime, to my surprise, to see people like Anne and Tay absolutely walking the streets safely, uh, <laughs> uh, or carrying a placard almost saying, "I am a poet." Uh, you would have been done for it, well and truly, when I was young. You kept wow. quiet about it.
1: Wow. Wow. That's, um, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Tay, uh, how did you get started? And, and was the world around you sort of conducive to writing poetry?
3: It's not that long um, ago. I think there's possibly potential for getting a bash still, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I managed to avoid it. Um, no, I, like, just always liked writing, and I liked reading a lot as a kid, and writing was, like, the first thing that, like... I was kind of noticed for, (laughs) like the first thing the teachers pointed out that I had talent in, and otherwise I was quite like a shy and under the radar sort of child, Um, and that obviously like severely affected me (laughs) and led me to here, Um, but yeah, quite different, like, um, you know, I started writing uh, as a kid, but then like when I was a teenager I started writing and you know, posting it on the internet, (laughs) on different sort of social media platforms, and trying to get people to engage with my writing that way. And, you know, so a lot of it was, (laughs) I guess, self-promotional in that sense. And I was doing it myself and putting myself out there. No one was asking me to. Like, that was all of my own accord. Um, In terms of, like, getting... Yeah, so it worked. It was all right. I I had a bit of a following and stuff on the internet and that, like, kind of gave me encouragement to keep doing it. But I did... I also was, like, quite serious slash highly pretentious about trying to do it in real life as well and when I was a teenager I used to I I grew up in Porirua in Wellington I used to um get the train into town in my like late teens and like try and go to poetry events in Wellington and just lurk around by myself and hopefully I'd meet someone who or I remember I used to go to um you know meow meow
2: yeah
3: and this is when I was underage with my one of my cousins foal was was a bouncer at the time and he used to get me into these uh, poetry gigs, and, and I would be like, "Oh, can you please ask your boss if I can do a reading too?" And I think he used to try and ask, but it, nothing ever happened. But um, yeah, um, but I didn't really get much traction in terms of getting to do it in real life until I started studying it, the IML yeah, kind of pathway. Yeah. yeah.
1: So two two points you've brought up that like the internet and creative writing schools. I think we'll come back to those issues later. Yeah. Thank you, T. Um, for me, I, I was a child of the '60s and '70s, and um, in, a, in a sort of bookish family, um, in a certain way, like you know, we went to the library and everything. So, grew up like very privileged as a like middle class kid, um, but of a working class mother, and in a kind of very mixed school and mixed neighbourhood. So, I was sort of very aware of social class, and I think aware of my privilege from quite an earl- early age. And that it was so easy for me to, like, um, go to university, um, spend, like, um, you know, take some time off just to just sort of think and read and write. So, and that's what I did. Um, so, as a, you know, in the 70s, as a sort of, like, late teens. Um, and even though I, I didn't have many sort of poetry models as a, as a young woman in those days, um, I, it was probably from lack of searching or they weren't accessible to me, in in Aotearoa, that is. So I felt like I was sort of going alone, but at the same time, in those times, there was just such freedom to um, just take a few weeks off, you know, you'll be fine as a middle-class kid, you know, economically, and I wasn't worried about my future. So I I think that shaped me a lot as a a writer. Mm -hmm. Actually, I didn't write poetry then, (laughs) I have to confess. But I... I was a closet poet, but um, but but I think that the main sort of thing was the sort of freedom that seems to me, even though there is so much poetry out there these days, it's still harder for young people to find the time to do it, and it just greatly concerns me. And I God, I hope things are going to change. <laughs> um, so you know, um, reading reading all our work, you know, over the last sort of um, couple of weeks, something that really struck me that I think is to do with our different generations, but it also brings us together is that we 've all written about family and um, and that 's kind of interesting to me because we 're sort of harking back to a previous generation and kind of carrying you know a generation or maybe lots of generations with us as we sort of go on as writers um, so um, Particularly, uh, Kevin, one of your poems, "My Father," which is just so beautiful. Um, just love that. Uh, but te, um, you, you, um, you, in your first book, um, "Tangi and the King Country," it's just so beautiful about Farno, and your uh, first book is dedicated to your mum. So it seems like family is a, a really strong thread running through all our work. Um... um so um, let's talk about that. About what the, how did that inspiration come about, and um, w- was it um, was there something sort of burning that needed to get, be told initially? T-, T-, T, do you want to take that one up?
3: Um, Writing about family. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I always write about family, and it's like super evident in the first book, especially the first book, really does focus on multiple generations, there's about four generations of women, Uh, the same generations of me, my mother, my nana, and my great-grandmother. And I don't know, I think family is like fruitful territory for a writer for like multiple reasons. Like, you know, one thing, it's the constant, it's always there. And the other thing, you know, but also it's like a source of, you know, (laughs) your whole personality, trauma, nice things to mine. But um, for me, like, I hadn't, I hadn't, Before I, I just had never. Before I had wrote my first book, which I wrote during my MA year at the IIML, I had never written about my culture. I never written about my family, Um, and then going there just kind of. I remember like I think it was like really early into the course. Like I was like maybe six weeks, in, I wrote my first sort of piece, poem about my family, and just the reaction I got from everyone was very like, "Well, this is actually what you should be writing about. You need to try and explore this further." and I think I like writing about it for multiple reasons. One, it's just I just feel like every time I um, lean into honoring my fucker papa, uh, they like my ancestors stand behind me and like lead me to <laughs> where I need to go, both in the actual poetry writing itself, uh, but also like in terms of my career. <laughs> um, yeah, and just it's like all over my culture because it's not just my generation of being millennial borderline gins <laughs> Z, but being like the distinction is that I'm, you know, a generation of Maori, of young Maori, of rangatahi Maori, um, of urban Maori. Um, I've f- got I had another point, but I've just forgotten. Oh. <laughs> it's just run away yeah. from me.
1: You know, um, uh, one of the one of the poems in your um, in your first book um, is this, this amazing poem about Maori um, wahine coming to the cities and it's, it's about that big, and it's just packed full of all these amazing sort of things that you might do as a person, a Māori woman from the country coming to the city, it's just amazing. So I guess, I guess that's sort of part of what, you, what you're talking about, really, like you're sort of looking back at your, you know, your, your recent history of your whānau, but also um, also over the years.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um.
1: Hey, Kevin, do you want to talk about that? About family, uh, writing about family. Y-
2: yes, y- I think you can't help that in a way. It cre- creeps in uh, unconsciously uh, if it doesn't uh, consciously. But I like the conscious ones. I like <laughs> to concentrate on things that happen... Uh, perhaps at the beginning of the war. For instance, I remember Michael Joseph Savage's when he you know, just got out of hospital a, a couple of days after the commencement of the, of the war, and he made a speech on the radio. And I can remember listening to that. And uh, uh, that was in 1939. And about that time, uh, my father uh, gave me an experience of money that has, uh, has stayed with me all my life. And uh, instead of uh, talking about that, I'll, I'll just describe this experience. It was dark. My father locked the back door, drew the curtains, then switched the light on. He whispered, I've got something staggering to show you. It's safe inside my pocket. You may never see the likes of it again. Then he thought a little. I expect you will. But not for donkey's years to come. It's the first I've ever owned in all my life. From his jacket, he took a wallet, opened its shiny leather mouth, and triumphantly plucked out a five-pound note. There, he said, a real bloody fiver. A fiver, look at it. I did so. Then he actually (laughs) let me touch it. (laughs) Briefly, gently, his hands were shaking. There, he said, a real bloody fiver, fiver, look at it. I did so. Then he gloated once again before he poked it back between the leather wallet's lips. I had a glimpse of treasure and can't recall when next I saw Another dazzler like it. It may have been a year or two. Then they began to pop from pockets everywhere, and they became mere money. A while later, I saw a man bang down a roll of 25ers on a table. They looked quite like a peeling, odd, infected paper sausage, mottled, (laughs) bloated. And I think that's an attitude to money. You see, his wages were under five pounds a week. Uh, That's like uh, people being paid now in a a $500 note or a $1,000 note. Uh, So the the fact of the fiver was extraordinary. And I can remember looking at it, I I can remember how he locked the door, everything, (laughs) to pull this damn fiver out. And, of course, it was the beginning of the war, so we had blackout, and uh, all the windows were blacked out. So there it was, an extraordinary thing. My father was also in the ARP, which uh, entitled him to wear a steel helmet and a badge and to walk around and boss the neighbours about if they saw a crack of light coming out, because if the Japanese came over and they saw a crack of light, they'd know to drop their bombs on it. I mean, the thing was... uh, 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 all necessary and disciplined and so on. But I won't wander off into those war years. But it's just the way family crops up all the time because family is full of information. It's full of the store of little wonders we carry around with us.
1: That's so true. Thank you Thank you for that wonderful poem, Kevin. Mm. Um,
2: yeah. OK, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. Um, for, for me, the same. I, I feel like I started writing because of family, that I felt like I had sort of stories to tell that I'd grown up listening to. So I grew up sort of Irish Catholic, and there, and family was just a sort of topic of conversation like um, all the time. And, um, and and I think that really what was what drove me. I was like, I had to get this down, but in a, obviously in a different form from what was being spoken verbally, which comes to the actual poetry. We'll talk about that later. Um, but um, I, I was thinking recently that, um, you know, often um, people are told as, as young writers and perhaps, you know, like doing a course in creative writing or something, um, you know, avoid writing about the self because it's too hard to process. But for me, it was the absolute opposite. I felt like I needed to sort of burn off the sort of excess oil or something that was the family stories, just have to get them out of the way. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but looking back... So, my early um, sort of um, you know kind of essays into writing were trying to get that down, and it was very important to do that to sort of go on and do something else, which um did eventually um, this is sort of related let's talk about like isms all the kind of like political and social and theoretical um sort of backdrop to what has produced our writing, or driven us to write over the years. Um, T, I'm, go- I'm going to quote an interview that you did uh, in Stuff, um, you, where you describe your poems as the intersection of indigeneity and modernity, our history and looking backwards to move forwards. It was so beautifully put and a lot going on there, which actually reminded me of um, Albert Wint's seminal essay Towards the New Oceania, where he discusses the traditional and the modern. So yeah, so how, how do you negotiate the sort of intersection between um, indigeneity and uh, modernity in your generation? I know this is a huge question, yeah. so you might just take a seam of it, if you could.
3: Um. I'm not sure if I like do like negotiate it as such. I feel like it's just something that comes like very naturally to me because it's what I've known my whole life. And, and I mean that's I think the same for many like, you know, young Maori and um writers and you know young Maori in general. We, you know, we have that whole cultural uh heritage, our whakapapa, our history, but also we are just, you know, still <laughs> Twenty first century rock and roll kids now. Nah, just like running around being eggs on the internet and just like, you know, it's just it's I think it's more of a natural thing. Um and, you know, sometimes um there is tension there though. Sometimes they are not necessarily harmonious. Um, it is hard to practice our full like uh papa Māori under capitalism and the way that the world is now it's hard it's not natural for us it's bad for our (laughs) wairua and it's it's heavy Um, but I think that tension is actually um, very fertile for writing poetry I feel like when I'm writing poetry I'm wanting things to like rub up against each other that maybe shouldn't meet and have that sort of energy yeah and just attention I guess so um, it's hard in real life but it um, I think it can work mm. in, in, on the page or in arts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I, I'll go ne- next about isms. Um, I, when I was young, um, I was sort of on the end of the second wave of feminism. Um, just missed it, actually, but it was still inf- influential to me. And and um, uh, that sort of drove me enormously in my, my early writing in all sorts of ways and a sort of burning desire to sort of get something down that expressed um, how it was to be a young woman in, like, um, you know, 1982 or something like that. Um, so e- even though other issues, like such as um, the post-colonial situation, my situation as a parker, and climate change and all that have kind of usurped that, f- um, feminism is it sort of underpins everything I do, and I don't think... Um, I would have had the same kind of, kind of, um, for writing and, and sort of, you know, felt compelled to write, actually, as a young person, without that political um, drive behind me. Um, so, um, yeah, also, as a I identified as bisexual, and that wasn't a the thing then, and so that was behind it, too. So it was very, very important to have a political sort of driver behind what sort of ended up as an artistic um, expression. So I think those two things are quite interesting, and we'll sort of maybe come back to that in a minute. Um, But, Kevin, um, isms, um, were were political concerns a backdrop for you, like starting out and continuing through your, your years of writing?
2: Yes, it was a very political time because... I lived through, uh, I was born in the Depression and I remember uh, going to school uh, when I started school in 1938 at uh, uh, Mount Roskill. I was born in Mount Albert, so I've travelled all the way to Devonport in my lifetime. And uh, and uh, <laughs> the, uh, the uh, uh, when I went there first, uh, little boys, including myself, wore singlets made from champion flower bags. Uh, because we always bought our, our flour in bags in those days, and so uh, we were, we were poor, but I had no idea that we were poor. It was just something that happened to us. Uh, my uh, the old age pension when it came in was a pound a week. I mean that was an amazing largesse to poor people, uh, but but it was. Just stunning. It was uh, an amazing uplift to the spirit and a change of the nation. We were all political through the war because, of course, we had uh, Nazism and democracy fighting. And so it was a political time. And we had, uh, after the war, when we had the extraordinary anti-union business and and when things were opened up and the economy uh, became opened uh, for a while, anyway, and, uh, and things changed. And we were allowed to express ourselves in ways uh, that, were, that, that were dynamic. We sat around. There was 6 o'clock closing in those days. I remember them well as I, as I grew into them in the early 1950s. And, and we were political people. We would sit around talking at night because there was no television, there was little radio, but serials. And so we sat around and we talked. And uh, and that was what made us into political animals. And we couldn't help it. Uh, y- we were full of isms. What ism we didn't have, I don't know. We loved it. It was dynamic. Uh, and I, and I, I will read a poem a little later about my grandfather. He belonged to the generation uh, that wasn't even educated, mostly around the place, because he was born in the 1860s down in Tālaga Bay and uh, and brought up by by uh, uh, people uh, largely. So that his his first uh, language at the age of six to eight was Maori, um, and and that was just normal, natural in an isolated community. Uh, and so I'll, I'll, I'll save that for later.
1: That, oh yeah, well, maybe s- sooner rather than later. She, my grandfather's first language was Māori as well, yeah. on Lighthouses. Yeah. yeah. Hey, um, uh, let's read a poem. Let's do the first, re- first reading, perhaps first. Uh, uh, tai, would you like to read a poem for us?
3: Sure. <laughs> um, I think I'll read this poem called... Oh, I forgot what it's called. Can I Still Come Crash at Yours? And it's kind of set, like, during my... Teen years, school years, out in town, Porirua. (laughs) Can I still come crash at yours? We were only girls then, itty, 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 but already we were pretty little putty putty going high amongst the weeds and already we had trained our eyes to pick them out. You know the ones, Air Force ones, slacker jeans, jaw of the whale, bandana, bunny tails, we wanted them to pick us too. Spent afternoons in our classrooms, praying for them to come through and satirise themselves, press their noses against the glass, make the teacher racist and the eggs laugh, yeah. We loved those flash-hulking diamonds the best of a bad bunch who despite... The purple fruit punches, the sunny nights, the salt and peppered eyes, the police hospitality, the Maori brutality, the AI reality of ripped bodies and ripped copies of Kanye West, my bro, my dark, twisted fantasy, an iPod with one working headphone, no working dad at home who who is so hearty and naughty, such wholesome, wonderful liars that who honestly seem to glow. Like those plastic stick-on stars which in the daylight look like two-dollar shops in bad taste. But in the dark, on the first beds we ever made for men just like our mothers. Shoulder to shoulder, beneath their second-hand Star Wars covers, palms over their hemato, they shone almost like the real thing and we were astrologers drawing dots to dots and making connections where there weren't any, casting our ships full of wish into the sky. And our eyes-rimmed and raxed Maybelline would widen and soften and rage and welcome, just like the ocean. And we felt watery with understanding that we were yet to understand, but we had some vague notions and enjoyed going through the motions of boiling pork bones and vermicelli, and braiding or shaving their heads on the stoop during the buzz-cut season, swooping in on their soft baby-boy locks for matching heart-shaped lockets or our love spells, chanting, with our hands across our hearts that we did not hope to die, but hope to live. The simple life of endless American reality TV shows and a couple of chubby kids, because we were down to be wifies, Rolling up and refreshing the ashtrays and the bottles, practiced at handling them carefully, like lovers on a laminated table. So we exchanged vows, not to them, but to each other. That every day, we would wake up and put our makeup on just to watch them play DTA and exclaim proudly that this is how bad girls do it. From Cape Brienga to the deep blue south, marry up and spend our days just swanning on the couch, real Fitzgerald-type shit, we here. So, like very good girls, we prioritize those boys in their fake Gucci sweatshirts, so genuine, so brainless. We would tell each other that we loved them, only faintly aware that it wasn't true on the nights that we all crashed together, Marai styles, gazing up at the same stickered roof, I turn to you empty tui winding down on the floor and the clock stuck on midnight, your eyes dilating like two big twin moons. I pass you the smoke. You fill up the room. Wow. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. Right.
3: Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Kevin, you, you read the, the poem that you just talked about before.
2: Yes. This is a grandfather in transports. Now, uh, he was born in the eighteen sixties This happens uh, uh you know here I am at uh, at eighty nine and and uh, i've uh, so that 's hundred and sixty years between his birth and my presence at the moment and that 's all that 's just three generations uh that 's no time at all in fact my my mother <coughs> ghost r- wrote. Uh, the, uh, the biography of Henry Hayward, and uh, he was the impresario who had uh, uh, so many places around Australia and New Zealand uh, theatres, and uh, and he uh, uh, was born to a father who was in his late eighties. Who was born to a father who procreated his father uh, in his late eighties, and he was a man who lived to be nearly a hundred. And in three generations, his grandfather was born in the time of the Stuarts, and this book was written and uh, ghosted by my mother at the, uh, at, in 1940. I mean, that's extraordinary. 1940, and he's back in 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 the 17th century. This is just extraordinary. <laughs> um, and so here is my grandfather 160 years ago. Uh, in transports. My maternal grandfather left New Zealand for Australia in a sailing ship. He did consider going by steam, but asked, what if the engine stops? Canvas looked far more dependable. His opinion never changed. When he returned to Wellington he saw a motor car and fell down laughing, for instantly he understood It needed roads and bridges (laughs) and could never beat a horse. (laughs) On top of which, you couldn't feed it hay or grass. For those who wished to travel overland, he insisted there was only one invention to manifest the brilliance and the far reach of the human mind. The railway train, a machine that hurled itself along twin-iron rails crossing our fair country, often at a scheduled time. And the wondrous virtue it displayed above all else was that you knew the one and only place in town that lived from and arrived. Yet the mode of transport that gave him most delight was a polished pair of boots in red, bush singlet buttoned to the neck, shiny suit, with belted trousers, ancient watch and chain, a bowler hat and heavy hawthorn walking stick. He'd set off to admire the land and stop all passers-by with talk on poetry, religion, politics. He had the magic gifts of memory and fluency and was completely and forever wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 Marvellous. Yes. Thank, Thank you. Uh, Thank great. You, Kevin. Uh.
1: Okay, I'm going to read a poem now. Um, uh, this is an ekphrastic poem, and eventually you might recognise the painting that it's about. It's called These Scholars at the Picnic One Day. My poem about the hot day Susan and I lunched by the river might be boring with just us in it. So I'll add a man, a scholar, I think, and give him an elbow to lean on while talking to my other invention, the other scholar, who'll be nutting out an ontological problem and so gazing upwards glassily and, of course, nestled up to me. But here's the thing. Just for a laugh, I'll dress these scholars. Yes, I'll give them black serge jackets, although it's like 30 degrees, grey flannel trousers, thick shirts and cravats. Hey, and a fez each. Not to be pretentious, but they'll look a little pretentious, and perhaps even be a little. And Susan will go to swim half-dressed in the river. I'll be a bit pissed at her for ditching me, and truth be told, self-conscious at being left the only normal one on the grass. In the struggle to dress the men, we've spilled the picnic in the leaves so there's no food. Eventually, I'll realize that the first scholar is not talking to the other scholar, but to me, expounding on the nature of art, I will find it boring and will be sorry I ever thought to add these men to the lunch on the grass I will look away, I'll look reader, listener at you hoping you'll interpret my pleading expression take off your clothes drop them one by one on the grass as you come over to rescue me Thank you, Thank you. Hey, um, let's quickly move on to um, th- our actual words on the page. So sort of poetics, like, you know, philosophy of poetry, like um, sort of theory of poetry, um, and how our times have affected that. Because obviously through the ages, like, you know, everybody write- has written differently. The you know, romantics sort of wrote f- quite formally about sort of nature and the classics, and um, the imagists wrote about red wheelbarrows, etc. cetera, and, um, you know, confessional... Poets kind of divulged about itself. So we've all been, in our generations, been so influenced by the writing that's been going on around us in terms of how do we actually... How do we sound on the page? So um, I just... I wanted to ask you both about that and also have something to say about it. Um, So, Tay, I want to start with you, because, you know... um, this sort of new new wave of poetry which I feel like you are just like hitting the charge in um, is sort of about the self in a way that is so new to my ears or my ear I think you meant to say um, so it's kind of revealing but it's kind of jokey and it's a bit self deprecating but it just it just sort of has everything kind of jammed into it about the self and um, and 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 you've actually been criticised for this. Like for this, I can't believe it. Like you know, these young people—they write about themselves so much. So I just—I'm really interested to hear. Like, wh- where does this come from?
3: Um, probably is a generational thing. I think we're all kind of like, was <laughs> not necessarily self-centred because just the world's so effed up. But also like <laughs> nihilistic. We all kind of think life's a joke because society's showing us that it is, and the people in power showing us that it is. It's like, um, so there's probably a bit of that. Um, I think, like, but also, like, I think my distinction, and I'm not sure if the applies to everyone of my generation, but my distinction of it being of my positionality as a wahine Māori is, like, just the self. When I write about myself, I'm not writing about myself i been writing the most specific, weirdest thing about me, and I know it's not just about me, and that's like not something that I, l- that I love all the time. <laughs> you know, sometimes I wish I could just mm. write about me without it having any wider impacts on mm. my people mm. and my representation representation of my people. Mm. But um, it's also empowering too. Yeah. Um, well,
1: amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I think you just answered those critics with the universality universi- of poetry. Yeah. Right? Like, the self isn't the self.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, like, no one's getting on the page and just writing about themselves and the most boring, whatever, their diary and how their day's going, you know, whispering, yeah. yeah. it's selective. and mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It amounts to something. That's a wonderful
1: answer. Thank you so mm. much. Yeah. So, Kevin, um, hey, we, you know, your, your lyric is so <laughs> mellifluous. Like, wh- where did it come from?
2: <coughs> uh, I think I, I was lucky that we, we, we had a, a one generation, a poetic generation that came out of Phoenix and all that sort of thing in the 1930s. So these, uh, 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 m- uh, mostly a group of men, but of course there was the, the notable uh, exception of Robert, Robin Hyde, uh, who was successful, uh, although she did male imitations, uh, including changing her name uh, from Iris Wilkinson uh, uh, to be uh, into that uh, non-specific Robin uh, name. But, but uh, uh, this is uh, an amazing thing to inherit. I always remember going from primary school where we didn't have uh, poetry except jingoistic stuff. It was the war, after all, and it was natural. Uh, so uh, we had... That and in Form 3, uh, just after the war, we, we, uh, we, we had a, 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 a mistress, Phoebe Meekle, who was absolutely extraordinary. She got out this book written uh, by a man called R.A.K. R- Mason and read out a couple of poems, including On the Swag, and I was gobsmacked. I didn't know that real living people in New Zealand wrote poetry. I was absolutely riveted. I couldn't move for minutes on end. It was astounding. It was a huge experience. It's one I can still remember vividly. uh, People talk about that wonderful old cliche about the, uh, I had my eyes opened. I had every part of me, every sense in my body opened by this poem. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. Thank you. Oh, gosh, that's great to hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, let, um, something that was touched on earlier, um, well, Tay, you brought both these issues up, like the internet and the creative writing school. So it's sort <laughs> of to do with um, l- l- like the kind of social milieu <laughs> that, that our poetry exists in. So I thought it'd be good to talk about that because I think it's been so different for each of us. Um, uh, I'll go first because I—I like, um, I was too late to um, b- uh, to sort of join the like study creative writing at university. Well, I, actually, I wasn't. I just didn't have my wits about me because I was at university when Bill Manhire was starting his first classes, and <coughs> I could have applied, <laughs> but I didn't know to. Um, but since, you know, over the years, I taught creative writing, and it's just been the most amazing thing to, um, to teach, but also to be educated as I went along, because everybody who teaches know that you just learn every single day that you're teaching, you learn stuff. So I felt like it sort of has educated me in the most wonderful way, but also I've sort of witnessed, um, you know, cohorts of people um, who have the same passion come together in the classroom and work together and support each other. But it hasn't always been like that. It's actually quite a new sort of <laughs> phenomenon. So, um, Ke- uh, Kevin, I just thought I'd ask you, it because to reference Bill Manhire again, um, I, I seem to remember um, him saying at one point that, the, uh, who's kind of the founder of you know, teaching creative writing in Aotearoa, is the founder of IIML, but and, you know, really the sort of overall founder of, of this um, pursuit, he said that when he was young, basically sort of creative writing school was in the pub, conducted in the pub, you know. So I thought I'd ask you, Kevin, about that. I mean, over a shandy, of course. Yes. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Is it, was that the case?
2: Yes, it was. And we had six o'clock closing, you see. So, so it wasn't conducted in a, uh, a, in a pub that was open in a civilised evening hour, when you might be talking at the end of the day or rambling at the end of the day openly about these things. What you were doing was uh, uh, getting it off your chest uh, in a melee of, of people, melee of people, and, and, and that you, uh, you were then chucked out in the streets and if you had a <laughs> bottle or two, you went on to somebody's house where you had the leisure, the opportunity to talk about these things. And a lot of discussion happened... Uh, And Bill's right, it started in the pub, but it actually went on to the little parties that used to happen socially all around town. There was a lot of stuff. And if you lived in central Auckland, you could hear the chatter everywhere after six o'clock because that's where people went. And if you had little, there were boarding houses and, and uh, real boarding houses, not just bed sitters in those days. And, and all sorts of little bed sitters and places, it was all changing over to bed sitters. And, and it was all happening in the evening. There was great chatter. And it all happened with different generations. And it happened with the different arts groups. Now they're all separate. Mm. But they, mm. you had painters, writers, poets. You, you had musicians. You had people involved in making things, building things, doing things. Architects. Mm. The Ar- so Auckland architects were the central, the mm. key to the whole thing that happened in Auckland.
1: Mm. That's so interesting, Kevin. Mm. And that perhaps now, by comparison, we're slightly in our sort of burrows. Yes. Yeah, really fascinating. So Tay, you're the graduate. You you of you you're a graduate of IML and not only that you won the Adams prize as a, as the a graduate. Um t- tell us has how how has this affected your your work like being in that cohort and being
3: like in a you know you know educated in creative writing. Um yeah, it, it, it changed a lot for me, like, it gave me that community that I was, you know, catching the train and trying to find all my own as a teenager like, um, yeah, like, it's just intro- and it just all kind of spiralled after one thing after another, like, meeting people and mm. just getting and, it, and a lot of it is, like you know sorry to say it, is networking and people you know and they give you opportunities invite you to readings, invite you to things like that, etcetera. etc. And it's I don't know it's it's good it's cool it's like you know because writing itself can is such a mm. thing that you do in complete freaking isolation it's so yeah. you know it's not it's not very collaborative at all so when you get to collaborate on things like readings and stuff it just yeah, yeah. it's nice and um yes. but like my cohort like the people that I run around with back home like there's not just writers really actually I tend to hang out with a lot of different sort of creative types artists and oh. things like that and okay. Also, I, I, I find it very motivating and inspirational yeah. to be around really to creative people. Like, That's very interesting. Always yeah. doing cool yeah. projects and then I want to do something cool again too kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 Fantastic.
1: Um, hey, I, I think it's time to um, ask the audience for uh, if you have any questions. There's a, there's a mic somewhere. Um, uh, yet yeah, roving around. So if anyone has questions for, for Kevin, T or myself, please put your hand up. I'll I come over to the mic. Where you go? Thank you. Please, um, so I will keep them short, so we can have as many questions as possible to put into the next few minutes. Yeah. Thanks. Please go ahead.
2: It works. Uh, I'd like to, I'd like to address my question to Kevin, <coughs> uh, a, felon, a fellow a fellow Devon Portion, or a portion of Devonport. <laughs> yes. uh, Kevin, you, it, it, it may be time for you to admit publicly that you're not Kevin Island at all, and that you come from different stock and I wondered, and, and that you were originally Kevin Jowsey, and I wonder how you chose the name Ireland. Oh, and I can answer that very simply, and I'd totally forgotten uh, <laughs> that old name uh, 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 because I've lived without it uh, for the past uh, 70 years. Uh, so I am the person, I am registered by deed poll, <laughs> and I'm not uh, that old person I killed him, I murdered him, I got rid of him, I dumped the body, I've actually since <laughs> dug it up and burnt it, I've actually scattered the ashes, I've put them in a the space rocket and I've fired them off into the universe. Wow, that's decisive. Uh, I, 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 I've actually, uh, I, I, I became uh, Ireland because I didn't. Uh, I, I, was going to Frank Haig to pay him ten and sixpence to change my name by deed poll and uh, and I hadn't decided on a name. I'd decided, of course, the usual things: colours, uh, the Smiths and Jones ones, and so on. And and I'd uh, uh, I just couldn't decide on any one of them because I knew so many people called all those names. And so uh, I I I I was walking down. I got off the bus. I was staying with Odo Strew and his wife and family out at uh, out at. Uh, uh, to and and I came down on the bus, and I was thinking, God, I've got to think of a bloody name soon. And I got off the bus. I was in a very early time. I got off the bus in Karenga, uh, just uh, in Ponsonby Road, at least, and I walked down Ireland Street, and I looked up at the street name, and I thought, geez, that's a bloody good name, <laughs> and I just chose that. And uh, I am named after a street, and I've often said... Just as well I wasn't walking down ladies' mile. <laughs> <laughs>
1: fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Another question? I think there's yeah. another... Yes, go th- ahead. Th- thanks so much, all of you. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, I was just wondering, when I was a boy at primary school, we had a wonderful teacher who sort of had this idea, you read a poem three times and then you understand it? or you know, it takes three readings to understand. And I was just wondering... Do you think that we have sort of lost that idea of understanding poetry? You know, whether we just sort of throw it out there a bit too much these days or, you take, know? You take this. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a tough one.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, personally for me, I, I do like my poems to be understood. And it's kind of like why I like pop music and stuff. Like, I I just, I don't know, I, I appreciate directness and I want to communicate things and that's just because uh, I think that's also to do with my positionality or my, not positionality, sorry, my responsibility and my desire to be a storyteller and when I'm telling these stories I, I want to I communicate the stories of my people and experiences but um, at the same time I, I think like, you know, you don't need to understand everything in a poem for it to be worthwhile, <laughs> yeah, Um yeah, it can just be an experience as well. Good answer, and, and
1: good question too. Um, it actually makes me um, think of that how... Because um, I, I like poems that have a lot of um, that sort of code switching between high and low and like sort of just talking and referencing and all that, and how just spoken you know, conversation has changed since my childhood, where we, we sort of thought we all talked the same. We didn't. But I think it's much more, it's much different now, and they're all kind of different ways of talking. And I kind of love the way that ends up in poetry. And um, so that's a bit sideways from your question. But it is a bit to do with, like, understanding a poem, having recognisable kind of language. I think we've got time for one, one more quick question. Um, There's one over there? Thank you. Okay, we better get on to it. (coughs) Thank you. Oh,
0: well, uh, my favorite poet is Yeats, whom I always love reading. And I'm just wondering who is your favorite poet, each of you? Which one?
2: Good question.
0: Favorite
1: poet? Wow. Just one? You go, Kevin. Oh, Yates yep. would
2: be pretty close to it. If I was going to take uh, in, anybody, single amount, I suppose it would be eight. But it changes every day. Who? Uh, oh. You know, I, I, but I'd, I'd come back to eight in in ah. the end. At, okay. uh, it's uh, just so... Yeah. it yeah. just got everything. T?
1: Can you yes. choose one? Can you choose one, tea? One poet?
3: It changes all the time, too, and I've got so many, I feel frickin'... <laughs> I'm, like, t- torn up inside by this question, but probably... Yeah. At the moment, and of recent, probably Jericho Brown. Mm, yeah. right. uh, Jericho Brown. He's a yeah. Mm,
1: yeah, amazing. Yeah, for me. No, I, I just it's very hard. In my top ten, I said Anna Jackson is my abs- absolute top ten. And uh, yeah, so um, I think that brings us to um, the end of our session. But I just want to say um, to uh, a couple of things. Um, um, that um, Kevin and Tay and myself will be out there at the signing table, signing books if you'd like to come and say hello um, and have a book signed. Um, this evening, Tay and I will be performing with musicians at Streetside Beresford Square, which is event 43 in the program. Really looking forward to that. So please join me in thanking Kevin Ireland, Tay <laughs> Tibble, Norera, tēnā Koto, tēnā Koto.
0: Tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you, Tēnā You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.